Hello, uh, this is Colin McEnroe. I feel like I have to tell you that because, first of all, I've been we've been away for a few days, and also because I don't sound like myself. Because this horrible thing happened, we uh, decided to take a little break here on the show. It was the first time we'd stopped the show, really, for about seven months, which turned out to be way too long to go without having a vacation, which meant that we were all really tired. And also, as we left, we were all tired, and we ran into this wall of flu-like organisms that are inhabiting the eastern seaboard right now. So both producer Betsy Kaplan and I got sick in separate locations. Uh, and so we're back and we're better, uh, but my voice is kind of in a weird place right now. So I apologize for that, and I apologize for uh, – I'm never going that this long without like a full vacation. It was a big, huge mistake. Now, so because of that, because of my slightly weakened state and the fact my voice is in, in great shape, we had to have high-powered guests today. We had to have the kinds of guests who can really kind of just kind of carry the show along when my spirits and body begin to flag. And we do have those guests today. In just a little while, you're going to meet uh, Alex Perrine, now a columnist for Salon.com. He's got a piece today that I think kind of, it's not today, it ran a day or two ago in uh, Salon, but it kind of reflects something a lot of you think, I believe, to whatever extent I can read your collective minds. And I guess by that I mean it reflects what I think a lot of the time, which is, you know, the New York Times op-ed page really is the greatest or among the greatest journalistic real estate in America. And you open it every day if you're reading the physical times or do whatever else it is that you do if you're reading it digitally. And it's kind of like, you know, I mean, there's some columnists that you really like and some columnists that you really hate. And mainly you're doing this kind of weird dance of death with all the columns and deciding whether to even bother to read them or not or wondering why does this particular person even have a column. Anyway, uh, Alex has predicted a pretty radical solution to that problem. So we'll we'll come to that. Uh, But a critic that we've really been following with great interest because she's the kind of critic, the kind of writer really makes you think and challenges some of your assumptions and pushes you that one step further as you engage with the stuff that she's writing about is Alyssa Rosenberg. She uh, right now has a, a blog about pop culture uh, for the Washington Post opinion section. But it's not just about pop culture, too. It really is about one of our favorite things, that place where pop culture and reality and politics begin to intersect. Uh, Her work has appeared in The New York Times, The Daily Beast, The New Republic, Salon, and other publications. We've been working very hard for a long time to get her on the show just so we can talk about whatever it is that she wants to talk about. So, Alyssa Rosenberg, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So we're going to begin with a piece that you wrote uh, about whether or not we're fact-checking popular culture to death or not. And really, your piece began with another piece, a a piece related to that, that that you had read uh, by a guy named Sam Adams writing on Critic Wire. Uh, His piece was called Please Kill the Expert Review, A Modest Proposal. I'm going to let you pick up the story from there, maybe uh, give us a sense of what Sam Adams said and then how you reacted to it. Sure. Sam is a terrific writer, and I think he was um, sort of crystallizing a frustration that many people who write primarily about the arts as critics feel about pieces that simply sort of fact-check things that they see as inaccuracies in pop culture and specifically in fiction, that, but that don't go any further to explain sort of why those departures from the historical record matter. Um, and I understand the tendency to do this. If you're an expert and you watch a movie and you feel like the what you see on screen doesn't reflect your own expertise or your own experience, it's tempting to sort of chime up about that. And there's been become a huge cottage industry of these pieces. 
Sam is arguing that, and I think the initial piece doesn't necessarily go quite as far um, as we did in our conversation, Sam is arguing that it's sort of silly to write those pieces without considering first that people who make movies make conscious decisions all the time and frequently, you know, they seek out researchers and consultants to um, get the things that they think are important to get right, right. Um, but that, you know, if you want to talk about these decisions, you should talk to, about them as conscious decisions rather than as mistakes and that it's more interesting to sort of interrogate why those decisions happen and what priorities they reflect than simply to point at them and say, this piece of fiction is not accurate to the world. So the kind of piece he's talking about and the, the template that he gives, uh, it's, it is so often, as he says, framed as what blah, blah gets wrong about blah, blah. So what, what, get, what Deadwood gets wrong about the American frontier town, Some, sure. something along those lines, right? Sure. And I think that, you know, I think to a certain extent, this is a common formulation because it's a convenient headline, right? It's compact. It's social friendly. Um, and I don't know that all pieces that have that sort of headline, which I am totally guilty of using, you know, stop at simply the question of fact checking. Um, I think what's much more interesting about, say, the hypothetical piece that you raised is, you know, why would HBO and David Milch want to present a particular vision of the American frontier town, and Deadwood is based very deeply in the lives of people who actually lived, you know, why would HBO or David Milch have those priorities as opposed to why is this wrong? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, and I think for me, a lot of the questions have to do with the um, implied and explicit aspirations of the individual creator or, or collective creators of any piece of work. In other words, uh, a show like Mad Men is implicitly setting the bar kind of high about certain things. I don't expect Mad Men to be fiendishly accurate about exactly how the advertising world worked in the 1960s. But the reason I'm watching Mad, Mad Men is because Matthew Weiner has an implicit covenant with me that he is going to get certain things right, certain things about the 1960s right. If I, I guess, I guess my question is, what, what about that accuracy is particularly appealing? Yeah, and, and that's, uh, that's a really great question. <laughs> and to me, in the case of Mad Men, uh, my, my own idiosyncratic reaction would be if I didn't feel as though he were getting a lot of things fairly right about the 1960s, I wouldn't really see a point in watching the show. Um, to me, that's the relationship. I'm not saying it's the relationship everybody has with the show, but that's the relationship that I have with the show, that, that I think it's a really well-drawn portrait of a time of great social change, um, which, is, which is handled in really interesting ways. I'm not that enamored of the individual characters in many cases. I don't really personally care about Don Draper. I haven't really bought into this whole Fitzgeraldian idea that he's, he represents this tortured, creative person who I, I, I don't care. But um, but I am really interested in what Weiner has to say about that period. So to a certain degree, I, I would hold him to a higher standard than I might, you know, the creator of a different kind of show. Sure. And I think that, you know, there is to a certain extent... You know, there can be times when people fudge the small details to get the larger sort of authentic ideas out. And then there are times when decisions that folks have made about small details can undermine their attempt to sort of speak to something larger. Um, you know, I think that and I think that that's that's interesting that but drawing that out 
is, I think, much more interesting than simply saying, you got this wrong, as opposed to you made a choice. Well, you know, one of the examples that you cite, though, is, is a really interesting one, because it seems to me that there are all kinds of different bargains that are made, given the form that we're in. So I think a whole separate set of considerations come up when it's more or less historical fiction. When mm. it's, and so one of the things that you dwell on a bit in a very interesting way is the Dallas Buyers Club, absolutely. A, a movie I walked out of absolutely loving and feeling very moved by, and then was hit with a whole series of what the Dallas Buyers Club gets wrong about Ron Woodruff, its central character, what the Dallas Buyers Club gets wrong about the availability and accessibility of certain kinds of medications yeah. and their efficacy. I mean, really, a lot of things in that film got to be discredited. So how, how do you engage with that? The Dylan Matthews piece that I like to did sort of an interesting job of drawing out a lot of these things. I mean, I would have been really interested to just hear some of those questions posed squarely to the director. You know, if you if you think that you will reach people more by making a movie about a straight character as opposed to a bisexual one or someone like Larry Kramer, I mean, that's a really interesting indicative choice of where you think the market is and where we are in our sort of collective memory of the AIDS crisis. Um, you know, I think that's a really, you know, those those choices mean something. But treating them as choices and trying to figure out what they mean is a lot more interesting than just pure fact-checking. As we go along here, we're not going to have a lot of time on this, but we'd love to hear from you if you're listening. 860-275-7266. To what degree do you either know or want to know or rather not know or, or care less about, anyway, uh, the factual accuracy, the historical accuracy of the things that you watch, the things that you read. The number 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. I mean, Alyssa, a lot of it also does, I, I think, appear to be, for me anyway, conditioned by the explicit bargain that some creators make with their audiences. Sure. I mean, for example, when the movie JFK came out, Oliver Stone, you mentioned a different Oliver Stone movie in your piece. But Nixon, yeah. Nixon. But when JFK came out, Oliver Stone was positioning this movie as a as a factual corrective. Sure. Li lies had been told, and, and he was going to fix this. Sure, and I think that, you know, Sam and I talked about this a little bit. I mean, when creators position themselves at, or make claims to accuracy, then of course it's fair to evaluate those. Um, but again, I think it's always more interesting to ask why is someone telling this story as opposed to a different story. I think the why is much more interesting than the simple diagnosis. Although that's, you know, I think that's a good position for a critic to put him or herself in. But the average viewer, does, will the average viewer do that? Will the average viewer, I mean, for the most part, people watch things and, and are pretty accepting of them, you know. I mean, but Amy Kramer, who I talked to in that piece, I think made a really good point that we, I think, I sort of underestimate viewers at our peril. I think it's, you know, it can be fashionable to sort of wring your hands about, um, you know, what people watch and what people like. One of the joys of my job is, you know, listening to people who think tremendously about these questions and live tremendously in the why. Um, I think, you know, I think viewers are incredibly engaged in ways that actually ought to be very heartening. Yeah, on the other hand, I don't know, people... People walk out of Dan Brown movies and say, oh, wow, I didn't realize all that stuff was the case. I mean, uh, sure. and I think art art is meant to persuade us. Art is meant to be persuasive. Sure. And I think that, you know, it's reasonable to ask people to be responsible and engaged and curious about the material that they're portraying. But I, I think it's awfully depressing to treat audiences like they're a bunch of dummies.
I mean, I think culture is the beginning of a conversation, not the end. Um, are there are there particular examples of this that do bother you? Are there um, examples of, of of creations that you do wish were fact checked or were more factually scrupulous? Um, I mean, you know, I think that you know, I don't know if you've heard of the CSI effect, um, but there is this idea that um, crime shows like CSI have made it seem that DNA te- uh, testing is so accurate and so definitive and so easy to pull together that in a case that doesn't have DNA evidence or where there's some doubt, that they just automatically assume that someone's innocent. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think it's, it's probably worth looking into how crime shows have changed evidentiary standards. I think that, you know, 24's decision to portray torture as if it is effective has had deleterious effects on members of the armed services and Americans' foreign policy. Um, but again, I think the why, the why and what happens after, it just generally makes for more interesting reading and more fulfilling conversation than just saying, like, this thing is wrong. See, I think expectations are so important, too. Like, I really wouldn't turn to 24. And I, and I, I in all the ways that I said before, I realized that, um, that that TV can be very seductive and and can have a, a real kind of pernicious effect on people's um, understandings of things, e- even as they're watching them and just being kind of lulled by them. On the other hand, I wouldn't turn to Twenty Four as a source of realistic thinking about torture. Zero Dark Thirty, on the other hand, which seems to me to have larger aspirations, both artistically and in terms of its implied connection to actual real life events. Its its depiction of torture, its depiction of the role that it that that played in, in the in the general unrolling of that story, that bothered me a lot more because I really did feel as though I were being sold something that I didn't really believe in that wouldn't really stand up to fact checking. Yeah, I mean, I, I I didn't take away from that movie that torture was effective. I know some people did. I don't find that supportable in the text. Um, but, I mean, everyone's going to see, and, you know, this is one of the things about culture is that people are going to see dramatically different things in the same text. So it's hard to, what some person sees as wrong, someone else might see as, you know, people just see things differently. It, it does seem that some of the cultural products we turn to, we turn to because we like the way that they're researched. I mean, I think one of the joys of watching The Americans these days is, you know, it feels as though they get an awful lot of things right about the, the 1980s. Uh, I, I don't, I mean, I haven't really sat there with a clipboard and tried to figure this out, and I'm sure there are cultural historians who are fly-specking the whole thing. I don't know whether they come out, where they come out on it, but certain kind of essential truths about the 1980s seem to be present in there, and, and that's part of the joy of the product, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess for me, it's a pretty tiny part of the product. I mean, I was born in 1984, and so I don't really remember the 80s. <laughs> um, but, I mean, I guess that stuff is fun Easter eggs, but mm. I think the I mean, the story construction in there, the plotting, sexual politics do a lot more for me than those sorts of Easter eggs. You know, one of the things you talk about in the piece, though, is how how dramas explore the outcomes of events that people are really apt to maybe encounter in their lives. Uh, you talk a little bit about Friday Night Lights, how they handled um, an unplanned pregnancy, and how, in general, things like that are handled. I, you know, I know you talked to the uh, to a spokesman for one organization about that. Explain where you went in the piece about that. Um, 
what do you, I'm not sure what you mean. Well, I mean, I, I think there's uh, some questions about uh, on television, in movies, what happens when there's an unplanned pregnancy and it's carried to term, and uh, is there always a happy ending, that kind of thing. Well, I but, think Amy was getting at two, sort of two different things, that it's, it can be important both to get the details right. I mean, she, you know, consults on what would actually happen to someone in Texas who has an unplanned pregnancy or someone in Colorado who wants to give a child up for adoption. Um, and, you know, it's those details are important and interesting, but just as important and interesting as sort of the larger emotional arc. What does it, you know, what are the actual emotional repercussions of giving a child up for adoption? What are the actual emotional repercussions of carrying that pregnancy to term and deciding to have the, a kid? You know, I think that getting both of those things right is really important. And I thought Amy was smart to point that out. Yeah, and I think those that speaks, though, to... to part of the genuine task of art anyway, right? You want, when people make emotional choices within your fiction, if you're good, you're getting, whichever choice it is, you're getting it right. You're, you're, you know, I mean, whether you're writing Anna Karenina or an episode of Friday Night Lights, you're either good or bad to a certain degree, depending on whether or not your characters really do resonate in a, in a, in a way that, that conforms pretty closely to human experience. Sure. All right. Don't agree with me all the time. It's, it's disconcerting. Um, all right. So um, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to come back. We've got a couple other things coming up with Alyssa Rosenberg after this. All right, we're back. This is Colin McEnroe. I know I don't sound like Colin McEnroe, but that's because I pick up some horrible disease in my travels. Uh, but we are back. Uh, with us right now is critic Alyssa Rosenberg. She writes for The Washington Post uh, on, a, on a blog called Act Four. Um, we've been talking a little bit about whether or not it makes sense to fact-check fiction. Uh, we're going to move on to another topic, but before we do, we've got a call from Peter in Mansfield. Hi, Peter. Hi, Colin. Um, yeah, I wanted to bring up the example of the movie Argo. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were two distortions towards the end of the movie that um, of the historic record. Uh, very different. One I objected to, and the other one I didn't care about. Um, the first one was that, and I don't remember exactly how it went in the movie, but I think that the White House under Jimmy Carter, at, I think it was Jimmy Carter, at the last minute um, pulls back on the mission, and then the agent um, sort of goes ahead anyways. And the reason I object to that was that the way it was portrayed, it would lead to somebody to think that the white, that, that the president at the time, uh, you know, sort of lost his nerve, and it kind of leads to political cynicism about how that all happened. The second distortion was that there was a chase scene as the plane was taking off, as the uh, Republican guard chases it down, chases the plane down the runway, and I mean, to most people looking at a movie like that, they say, well, this is probably a bit of a hype, hyped-up version of what happened, you know, for a drama. And um, as it turns out, there was no such case, you know, if you look. Right. It, it, and I think that those are two examples of how just, you know, there's one sort of puffing the story up, and the other one is distorting it and having an effect on how people think about the actual event, and in, in a distorted way. That's, it's a great example, and Alyssa. And do you, do you place a, a different qualitative weight on those two kinds of distortions? Um, I mean, I, you know, I think it's the kind of thing where you can dig all you want. I mean, fiction, 
distorts real life all the time. Nobody ever says goodbye on the phone because it's boring to watch. Um, I just I think that there I think this conversation has set kind of a low bar for viewers. Um, sort of about what they're able to distinguish and what they're not. And, you know, I I don't know that anyone assumes that the details in historical fiction are true. Um, I mean, I, again, I think, you know, these things are sort of interesting, but talking about why they're interesting is more interesting for me than noting that they exist. Well, although in terms of that low bar, I mean, I think his point's a pretty good one, which which is that I think the average viewer could watch the chase scene on the airstrip in Argo. But what and, 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 do we have about this? We're just assuming all of this. Well, no, I'm, but I'm saying the average viewer could watch that and say, that didn't happen. I under, I get that yeah. that didn't happen. Uh, you know, I'm not sure that the average viewer could watch the machinations going on in Washington uh, that, that are running parallel to the events unfolding in Iran and know which things represent distortions and which things don't. Sure. Uh, at which point... I mean, we had th- this sort of debate in Connecticut not too long ago when Lincoln came out and a congressman challenged Tony Kushner about the fact that he just he has one of the votes. He has the fundamental vote wrong. Uh, he has Connecticut's vote uh, in that uh, all important vote wrong um, and that there was really sort of no point in doing that, no point in getting it wrong. And, and I don't think you can assume that the person sitting in the audience is going to is going to know that it's wrong. Yeah. And so then the question is, do facts matter? Well, I mean, I think. You know, I think that, you know, people understand that they're watching fiction. And I don't, I don't know that anyone assumes that when they go to watch fiction that they're watching transcription. You know, I mean, I think that, I think you can argue about whether individual facts matter, but coming down with sort of a hard and fast rule that's saying getting this sort of thing, you know, wrong or choosing to depict something this way is wrong, choosing to depict something in this way is right, I just think that's a really, I don't think there's a hard and fast rule that you can find there. Let me grab one more call on this, then we're going to move on to a different topic. Uh, here's Edmund in Willimantic. Hi, Edmund. Hi, Colin. Uh, this is Edmund. Yes, I would just like to say that uh, uh, I often listen to your show. I think this is a great one. Uh, it seems to me that they fact-check films uh, for the physical details of what's going on. Did they actually have the rifle with that kind of a lock on it in that year? And was that the right computer for that, for that year? But what they don't check and what they, what they swing with is both the emotional and the political details. And those are sacrificed for either the value of the story or the political bias of the people who are making the film. So you will be sort of, I don't want to say fooled, but misled by saying, oh, yes, that's exactly the right uh, uh, computer. That's exactly the right road sign or automobile. And therefore, the emotional content and the purport of the scene, like, for instance, uh, 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 torture helps, uh, is, is sort of supported by these insignificant factual details. It's a great point. And, I mean, you could expand that, Alyssa, too. I, I, I had that same thought watching Mad Men this past Sunday night where, uh, you know, Matthew Weiner, I think, really is scrupulous about the, the street signs. And I know he's called historical societies or his people call historical societies to make sure that, that you know, there really was a train that ran from that point to that point, you know, at, at commuter hours in, in 1964. Um, on, on the other hand, 
as scrupulous as he is about that. I was sort of watching the events unfold Sunday night and was thinking, really, Don gets the office manager job that, you know, that that at that moment in history, they would run an African-American woman who was having trouble with her existing boss into a better job. That that felt emotionally and in terms of office, office politics, a lot less plausible than the scrupulously curated details of the series. I mean, I don't know if I agree with that at all, given Joan's position in the office um, and her relationship with everyone else involved, um, also given her relationships with Don and Shirley. Um, I actually, that seems pretty plausible to me to Joan's character. It's sort of a last bit of mischief on the way out the door and an opportunity to sort of assert, you know, to show off the importance of, you know, the office manager and secretaries in general. I thought that was very true to Joan. Um, we've got one more call from Kathy in New Haven. Hi, Kathy. Hi, Colin. Thanks for taking my call. Sure. Um, I have a comment with your um, your guest today, and my comment is, is I do my research in films and science, and one of the things that I've re- researched is how people perceive films. Mm. And unfortunately, whenever they see something on the big screen, people in general look at it as truth, whether it's truth or not, and so that gives a huge misconception about um, a lot of things. And being a science teacher, this has really played a really poor role in how people are perceived as scientists. And so I absolutely um, agree about all of that. I just think that the interesting question is not, you know, this is exactly what scientists do. This is not exactly what scientists do. What are the motivations for making those sorts of decisions? Because I certainly think that a lot of what we see on crime shows, for example, is an attempt to make scientists look cool and smart and, you know, trying to sort of roll back nerd stereotypes. And so I think that looking at the motivations and sort of how we get there and what happens is probably is, you know, that's an important conversation. Well, I also um, would like to say that, unfortunately, it's the um, visceral effects that people get from watching films and television that fuel their beliefs in what is real and what is not real. And that's where we have a problem in the science classroom is because students believe that this is what really happens, and in reality it's not. Kathy, do you have a real quick, do you have a real quick example of that kind of thing, something that you have to try to straighten out in the classroom? Well, yeah. Um, well, for example, um, the students have these beliefs that scientists are these crazy people with crazy hair and and, um, and there's been research going on with it, you know, the pocket protector, the white lab coat. And in reality, pe- scientists are just real people. And, um, and, but it's been portrayed so many times on television and in the movies that they have this misconception. And um, so when, we have, when we're trying to push kids into STEM and looking at math and science and technology and engineering, we really have a problem because we, they think that you have to be a crazy person and really smart with big rimmed glasses, and that's not what, what science is about at all. It's I about I'm just the, curious about where you think those conceptions are coming from. I mean, certainly you've got something like the Big Bang Theory, which is very popular, but also sort of emphasizes that, you know, all of these super geniuses, you know, have the same sort of life problems as everyone else. I mean, I think almost every scientist on television right now is physically attractive, has a social life, um, 
Maybe you it's know, more Christopher stuff. Christopher Lloyd in Back to the Future and Brett yeah. Spiner in Independence Day or something like that. Maybe yeah, there's been I mean, kids a course today correction are not since having then. Back to the Future is their seminal experience. <laughs> <laughs> true, true. Like. Kathy, great, great question though, and thanks very much for calling in. Hey, we just got a few minutes left, and uh, we had more topics than this that we wanted to cover. But uh, something that's really excited a lot of discussion among critics is a scene which took place on Sunday night uh, on uh, on Game of Thrones. I, I don't want to describe it too much because first of all, some of you don't watch Game of Thrones. Two characters uh, on the film, on the on the show rather, who are brother and sister, uh, and who have conceived uh, earlier in life a very very evil child who has now met uh, a richly deserved death, are beside the coffin of that dead um, young adult son, uh, and the man, the brother, forces himself uh, on his sister, um, and. And ultimately, this turns into a, a, a moment of, of sex, and although really kind of over her protestations. And so, Alyssa Rosenberg, you and a lot of other critics uh, are looking at that scene, looking at the ways in which it also differs from the books. Um, and, and well, I'll, I'll let you pick up the story from there. What did you either read into that scene or extract from it? I mean, I think I should, we should be really clear that what happens in that scene isn't sex, it's rape. Right. Um, and, you know, those, those are radically different things. One is about sexuality and physical pleasure and attraction one is about power um you know i think it's really hard to know how that change is going to affect the show until we've seen the relationship between those characters play out a little bit more um you know i i'm sort of dismayed to read some of the reactions saying that you know this is done to be titillating um which has been a weird sort of vibe around game of thrones since the beginning when Ginia belafonte wrote that, who's a critic for The New Yorker, wrote that the sexual assaults on the show had been attracted to, added to attract female viewers, which is one of the stranger conclusions I've seen someone reach. Um, You know, I don't really understand how that scene could be added to be titillating. Everybody is fully clothed. Um, And there's a dead body there. Like, it's a dead body. (laughs) So I find that um, strain of reasoning somewhat, you know, unpersuasive. I do understand viewers who are burned out on sexual violence on television. I happen to think that a lot of prestige dramas like The Americans, like Mad Men, like Game of Thrones, um, are doing really interesting psychologically acute things with those sorts of storylines. But when something like Downton Abbey, you know, throws sexual assault into the mix because they've already had, you know, death by seduction and Spanish flu and people dying in childbirth, you know, it can get exhausting. And I sympathize with those viewers who are just burned out. Yeah, I, I, my interpretation of this upon, I mean, one of the, th- the things that you brought up in your piece that I thought was really good is that we've really already seen these people do completely horrible things in the context of their relationships. Uh, the the man Jamie, the, one of the first things we see him do in order to cover up their in their in this time um, consensual incestuous coupling is to push a young boy to what he thinks is to his death. Um, I mean, he's prepared to murder a young boy to cover up what he does. He's so completely uh, a monster, at least in the context of this relationship, will do almost anything. Now, we've seen him behave more redemptively in the series since then. But when he gets back into this this relationship, he does seem to turn into a monster, even vis-a-vis the person that he allegedly loves. Yeah, I mean, it's and I thought it was an interesting moment, you know, the... Just as Joffrey's death is horrible and, you know, emphasizes his use in a way that I think makes us feel a little complicit in the kind of sadism that he's exhibited in earlier seasons. Um, You know, I think that this scene makes us wonder and, you know, rightly makes us wonder whether we were falling for a redemption narrative that 
was happening more in Jamie's head than in his actual behavior. And I think that's a that's an interesting place for the show to have put us. All right. Well, there's a debate raging about this, and Alyssa Rosenberg is one of the people writing about it. We thank her very much for joining us today. We've got to take a break here. When we come back, we'll be talking to Alex Perrine. Do you get frustrated with the New York Times op-ed page? Probably not as much as Alex Perrine does. All right, I already sound horrible, uh, and now I have to follow Patrick Stewart. That's not a good thing. Okay, so Wolfie isn't back from her, her trip yet, uh, so I have to say all the thank yous today. I'm delighted to say all the thank yous today, especially to Betsy Kaplan, uh, who pulled this show together. Greg Hill is here. He tweets for us at WNPR Colin. We would love for you to follow us at WNPR Colin. Uh, the big boss, the executive producer, Katie Tularski, is answering the phones today, so feel free during the next segment to call 860-275-7266. Find out whether she still has it, whether she can still uh, handle the phones for us. Uh, And who else do I have to thank? I don't see any interns. I think we're good. Uh, All right. I'm sure there's somebody I just forgot to thank, but that's a risk we all take. All right. So um, and and for this segment, I really do. I do encourage you to call in kind of on the early side because otherwise we'll run out of time. And I do feel like this is sort of something that may touch a nerve with many of you uh, because many of you are either subscribers to the New York Times or people who one way or another come into contact with the New York Times editorial page and uh, the op-ed page specifically. And we all have things we like and things that we don't like. It turns out Alex Perrine and I like pretty much almost exactly the same uh, people. We like Gail Collins. We like Charles Blow. We like Paul Krugman. But Alex Perrine, uh, who regards this as you know some of the most coveted real estate in journalism, thinks the rest of them are so horrible, maybe they should just blow the whole enterprise up, metaphorically speaking, and start from scratch. Um, Alex Perrine from Salon, welcome to the show. And I don't hear Alex Breen. Uh All right. You, you, should, I'll, I'll can place Alex on hold here for a second. Let's uh, make sure we can, whether we've got him or not, whether we can find him. Uh, meanwhile, and this actually gives me an opportunity to do this, uh, if you are looking forward to even more literary criticism after listening to Alyssa Rosenberg, um, this weekend it opens the third annual Writers Weekend at the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford. This is a three-day program. Starts on Friday, runs through Sunday. Uh, author Meg Wolitzer is going to be kicking off the activities with her keynote address on Friday night. And then they have really kind of this amazing lineup of workshops and speakers and stuff like that. You can uh, participate in these great workshops with your favorite writers and attend panel discussions with critics and playwrights throughout the weekend. Tickets are available for individual days uh, or for the entire weekend. You can link to the full schedule uh, at, oh no, there's no way in the world I can read this uh, address. Let's just say writing at the Mark Twain House. Try that. It's writing at the Mark Twain House, blogspot.com. There's got to be an easier way to figure this thing out. It's the third annual Writers Weekend at the Mark Twain House and Museum in Hartford. If you probably type something like that into Google, you'll get that. Or Meg Wolitzer at the Mark Twain House or something like that. Um, all right. So also while we're uh, waiting for Alex Perrine. Oh, there he is. Okay, we got him. So uh, Alex Perrine from Salon.com, uh, at least for now. And he is also the author of A Tea People's History and The Rude Guide to Mitt. So Alex Perrine, I already set this thing up for you a little bit. Um, um, explain basically what it is you're saying about the New York Times op-ed page. Well, uh, you know, like I said um, in the piece, it's incredibly valuable uh, media real estate. The New York Times op-ed page, um, it's, you know, the op-ed page that President Obama reads, basically. Um, it's the op-ed page that members of Congress read, that, you know, executives, corporate executives and, and influential people read. So what they say matters. And I think that they sort of have a responsibility to put forth 
you know, interesting arguments and possibly arguments that, that aren't, you know, already being made sort of everywhere else. Um, and, and by and large, the regular contributors for the Times are failing in that responsibility. You know, you go contributor by contributor, writer by writer, and explain and link out to a whole bunch of material, some of which was pretty new to me, some of which was not so much. And we can talk specifically about some of these writers. Uh, and once again, as I say, as we go along here, our number is 860-275-7266. You readers of the page may have your own uh, contributions. 860-275-7266. But before we go writer by writer, before we talk about individual writers, is there an overarching criticism besides the one that you just made? I, I mean, you know, in some ways, it's not surprising that the op-ed page of the New York Times would be kind of the voice of the status quo, would be kind of the voice of the establishment, right? Oh, totally. It's not surprising. <clears throat> but, um, you know, what they ought to be worried about is they have some of these people who, once you get that job, you sort of get to stick with it forever. I almost think there should be, you know, term <laughs> limits for op-ed columnists yeah. just because at a certain point, I think you've run out of things to say. And the the danger for the times is, um, yeah, right now everyone who's powerful reads it, but there's a generation coming up that might not be interested. Now, there's certain writers who uh, bug a lot of people. Uh, I think some of your more withering criticism is criticism of Tom Friedman, which I've, I hear all the time. And, I mean, a lot of people say, if I'm really confused about an international situation, I read the Thomas Friedman column, and then I believe the opposite of that. Um, <laughs> but... Uh, I don't know. Can you elaborate a little bit more on what your problem with Tom Friedman is? I would say that you wrote an incredibly devastating parody of him a while back, his ability to find exactly the right Palestinian service person in, in Brussels who can illuminate some you know vast international situation. But what's your real problem with Friedman? Well, there are stylistic reasons to dislike Friedman, which is that he's a very clumsy writer, famous for his mixed metaphors. Um, that's, I think, one of the reasons he's so popular <laughs> is that you know he writes in a very simple style. But like, I mean, when you look at someone whose supposed area of expertise is uh, foreign relations, um, you you know, go back to 2002, 2003, he was one of the most prominent um, cheerleaders for the invasion of Iraq, based. Um, on faulty intelligence. And I mean, it's now, you know, more than a decade later. And like, has he ever, he hasn't ever atoned for that. He doesn't show any remorse. And I, you know, you, you sort of wonder when he's writing about Syria or Ukraine, like, why should we listen to the man who was so disastrously wrong about the most important foreign policy issue of our time? He's also kind of the voice of globalization, right? It, it's all, it's yeah. not that he doesn't ever have a critique of globalization, but overall, I mean, he doesn't ever really have a fundamental critique of globalization. No, and it's, it's what he's made his bank on, you know, is the, you know, the world is flat and all that sort of thing. But his, in his uh, telling, globalization is a very simple, good thing. And, um, you know, there can be endless debates about how globalization works and who it helps and who it hurts. But in Thomas Friedman's world, you know, you fly to India and you meet a CEO on a golf course and suddenly you understand the world economy. It's this very simplistic, like very, very like, I mean, it's, it's pro-corporate, but it's, it's pro-corporate in a way that just um, doesn't even try to understand the complexity of the issues involved. All right. Um, let's move on to I, I think there's two there are two writers at The New York Times who really kind of kick people's trip wires, get on people's nerves. One of them is Friedman. And I think Maureen Dowd is the other one. Maureen Dowd really I mean, I read Maureen Dowd often because I enjoy having suspicions of her and I enjoy seeing if I can find meretricious things uh, that are that are buried in there. Although today, I mean, I, she actually 
wrote a really good, tough column about the Roman Catholic Church, which which I thought was yeah. was appropriate. But um, let, t- uh, give me your take on Maureen Dowd. So Maureen Dowd is, I think, she's an example of what I mean when I say maybe there ought to be, you know, term limits. She's a Pulitzer-winning columnist. Like, there is a reason she has the job that she has. Um, and she, you know, many years ago was a very dogged and very good reporter who did some very good uh, reporting. Um, I, you know, in the very early days of the AIDS crisis, she was one of the first reporters to really dig into that. So she, you know, the problem is not she's she's a... Uh, Good, you know, she's a good journalist. She's a smart person, um, but the issue is that, like, she, her tics, her mannerisms have just become set in stone. And the, you know, the the cutesy nicknames for politicians, the imagined dialogues between politicians, all of these things that maybe once were seen as like very cutting edge, they're just like increasingly tired. And she has this strain in her too, which I, I find very gross, in which she sort of constantly attacks the masculinity of. Uh, you know, liberal politicians while while sort of playing up the the manliness of conservative ones. And it's, it's based on these very, very tired stereotypes. Yeah, I, I would argue. And by the way, our number, if you if you need to vent, 860-275-7266, 860-275-7266. I would argue that Dowd is the most openly sexist columnist uh, at, at the uh, at the New York Times. I mean, I would completely agree with you. Yeah, I mean, certainly a lot of her critiques of Hillary Clinton uh, are dripping with sexism. And as you say, I mean, when she went after Al Gore, at one point she said that he was so concerned with all these very womanly, feminine things like the environment that he was practically lactating. Uh, which, yeah. I mean, I, I don't even quite even understand the subtext of that. That first of all, there's there's something feminine about caring about the environment and and therefore unmanly. And, and that he'd be, la- I, I mean, I just, it was an image that, although it sort of, I'm, I think it tripped off the typewriter in, in a, you know, a really appealing way. It doesn't really make any sense. No, exactly. Um, and, and I mean, I, I look, can I vent about Dowd too? I'm the host, but I just, I feel like I've got to say a couple of things too. I mean, the other thing that's bothered me a lot is that she does make things up. Uh, and that was one yeah. of the examples that you cite is that everybody absolutely knows uh, that, uh, that John Kerry said, who among us does not love NASCAR, except that he didn't, right? No, no. He, uh, I can't remember the exact wording, but his, his exact wording was like much more normal. It was, it was, you know, like everyone else here, I'm a NASCAR fan or something like that. It was like a normal thing you'd say at a campaign speech. And that's an example of like sloppiness, which is the other problem. And this is, you know, like maybe this just comes from having to write two columns every week when you don't have anything to say. But Maureen Dowd is sort of notorious for copying and pasting things her friends send her into her column and, uh, you know, using para- – like that, that John Kerry quote came because she took a paraphrase that someone sent her and used it as an actual quote. And that's not exactly, you know, that's sort of failing journalistic ethics 101. Yeah, my recollection of that one was she was having a con- – she'd had a conversation with the New York Times, I think it was Cheryl Gay Stolberg, who'd been at that yeah. event, got an informal description of it. And really when you go back, actually our own Mike Pesca captured the whole thing on tape. And and what Kerry says is, as you say, a pretty normal way of saying, well, you know, everybody really likes NASCAR, um, you know, including me or whatever. And then he goes on to make a very typically wonky John Kerry point. He starts says something like, but when people, when they say, gentlemen, start your engines and everybody watches the race, what they don't know is all these jobs are blah, 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 and manufacturing, blah, blah, blah. I mean, he, he didn't make this effete northeastern sail border kind of 
point about about NASCAR in a way that didn't even re- ring remotely true. It was it was sort of different. Really, what he was doing was being the John Kerry that we all know, which is somebody who can sort of really begin to kind of bore you even after he yeah. starts out talking about NASCAR. But really, some of the stuff and some of the stuff that you just described also, which is you know seemed like borderline plagiarism, is stuff you know a lot of journalists lose their jobs for doing this stuff. Oh, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and that's why um, it's it's funny. Like there are certain rules. Like there are things you can do as an editorial columnist that you could not get away with as a regular journalist at the times. And it's, I mean, it's actually, I know, I mean, I actually, I, I, I know that Paul Krugman has his columns fact-checked, um, and I'm not really sure why they subject him to that standard, but not apparently the others. Um, now, there's that, okay, there are those, um, those kinds of writers, and then there are writers that, with whom we encounter ideas that are not exactly our own. Um, so if you're a liberal reading the, you know, or even a centrist, uh, reading that, reading that page, reading the times op-ed page, um, you know, maybe you're going to have some problems with David Brooks. You're probably going to have some problems with Ross Douthat. One of the things that we struggle to do, I think, as we read this stuff is to separate the fact that we have ideological differences with the, with these columnists from whether there's some kind of overarching objection to them. I mean, reading Douthat, for example, I, I rarely agree with what he says, but I don't think I have as much of a problem as you do with him beyond that. In other words, I expect to read some opinion pieces on any op-ed page that are represent radically different opinions from my own. Yeah. So, so uh, how do you make I, that distinction? Well, I, I, I think someone like Douthat, and it's, it's true of David Brooks as well, but someone like Douthat, I, I mean, he's, he's a very smart guy and he's a good writer, um, and he's the best sort of He's the sort of conservative the New York Times would hire because uh, they're reaching a, a an educated, mostly liberal audience, and they want a conservative writer that liberals won't essentially find too offensive. Um, but I mean, so my my problems with Douthat are essentially ideological. I mean, we disagree on on almost everything, um, but I do think that there is a sense in which you're not getting an accurate picture of the modern conservative movement when you read these conservative writers. Um, you you can sort of imagine if you only read them, you could imagine that the conservative movement is you know very um, intellectually serious and and takes the opposing side seriously um, and like listens uh, to liberal arguments and and considers them and then you know re- responds with measured responses. But no, that, that's sort of not the way politics actually has been working for a while now. So someone like Douthat, you know, he'll he'll present the best the the best possible reasoned. Um, defense of a ban on same-sex marriage. It'll be like the, the it'll be, it may have to stretch a little bit to convince to convince you, but it'll be the best possible reason to response to why we should outlaw same-sex marriage. But that's not the the argument that people who want to outlaw it are generally using. Um, I'm saving for last David Brooks, with whom many of us have a very complicated relationship. Um, you know, I, I first of all, I hear Brooks is a really nice man, uh, and I've had a few encounters with him where he seemed like an extremely nice man. He's also a very smart guy, a very interesting writer in some ways, and a guy who's kind of always, at least in my experience with him, teasing us a little bit. It's like he's beckoning us towards him, saying, I really do have some interesting ideas. I'm not a dyed-in-the-wool conservative, the kind of person that you wouldn't be able to forge any kind of understanding with. I'm different from that. Um, I'm open to a lot of things. Um, and yet, uh, th- there's some way in which when I take that one last step towards him, a force field gets thrown up and kind of whacks me in the nose, and, and I'm sorry that I did that. I don't know. Does your analysis yield uh, a more intelligent way of explaining that effect? 
that's with David Brooks, it's 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 funny. Um, I have a kind of a complicated relationship with him too. I think that uh, he can be a very dry and funny writer. Um, and when he wrote that column a while back, it was essentially a column making fun of himself in a lot of ways. Um, and it was <laughs> made fun of himself much better than than even I could. And I've been making fun of him for a long time. Um, <laughs> but uh, he, um, it's I, you know, like like I I sort of think my take on him is that. At this point, I don't know if he really wants to be a political columnist anymore. Mm-hmm. Like he does seem much happier when he's sort of writing these um, little uh, examinations of philosophy and talking about self-examination and and humility and things like that. He likes these sort of big ideas, and he's getting very philosophical. And at a certain point, it's like, well, isn't your job description sort of to to argue for politics here, David? To uh, to convince us of a political point or to lobby for for something? Um. Alex Breen, we've only got about a minute left. Uh, one of the things I said to you in an email is, how long is this going to matter? In other words, I still read the physical New York Times, but I'm an old guy. Um, so, I mean, I look at that real estate, and obviously the real estate can exist digitally and virtually. But I wonder whether the franchise that is a New York Times column will be as important even in five years as it is now. Uh, I mean, it's in one sense, um, it will be less important. But in, in another sense, like the New York Times, um, unfortunately and sadly, um, is one of our last, you know, major newspapers. Um, the idea of having multiple sort of national newspapers with, with a nationwide reach, um, that's not really – there's only room for one in this economy. And uh, I think that, you know, so the Times are going to continue to matter. But, um, I mean, I also know plenty of people in my generation, and I'm not yet 30, plenty of people who, who don't read it at all. So, I mean, they're going to have to fight if they want to get people to, to still take them seriously. All right. Well, Alex Breen, it was great to talk to you. The article is fabulous. Uh, and uh, people who want and, to—and following the links, by the way, is something that I really recommend doing on Alex Breen's uh, piece in Salon.com about whether or not it makes sense to just kind of blow up the New York Times op-ed page and start all over. We wouldn't want that to happen because we love Gail Collins so much. Uh, and Paul Grigman's great, and Charles Blow is dry but interesting. Uh, so we wouldn't want it to entirely blow up. Anyway, thanks to everybody who helped out with today's show. We'll be back tomorrow in our undying quest to do a really sexy, exciting show about trees. We're going to be back with the Eastern Hemlock tomorrow, and this time we are going to deliver. <laughs>